Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about Hydra in 19th century India. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Bunurong Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include discussions of castration, including the castration of minors, discussions of British colonial rule of India, including racist and genocidal anti-Hydra policies by the British, the removal of children from Hydra households, and non-consensual medical examination. There will be discussions of sex work and the use of outdated and offensive language for sex work and sex workers in quotes, discussions of sexual abuse and of the forced prostitution of minors, discussions of murder in the context of domestic violence, discussions in the kidnapping of children, and the use of outdated language for intersex people in quotes. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out our other content. So, for those of you who are new to the term, hydra is a South Asian word referring to a category of people who traditionally present in feminine ways and support themselves through performance at certain life cycle events like weddings and the births of male children. Most hydra are assigned male at birth. The word hydra seems to have attained wide use around the 16th century, but records of gender non-conforming people who share some traits with hydra date back much further. There's a lot of diversity amongst hydra experience that we won't have time to get into today, but one thing I do want to note is that even the word hydra itself is content. In some areas, particularly in Pakistan, it's considered offensive and other words are preferred. I will be using the word hydra today because it is the most widespread word used to refer to the community we're discussing, but I just did want to note that not everybody who this word can be used to describe prefers to use this word. That is the nature of queer words. Well, yeah, some people definitely do use this word to talk about themselves, but some don't want this word used to talk about themselves. But, you know, as with a lot of issues with queer language, there's no word that will offend nobody. I also want to note before we get into it that I will be using she, her pronouns when talking about Hydra individuals. I don't have any record of the gendered language that these people, because we're talking about people in the 19th century, used for themselves in the period we're discussing. So my choice of feminine pronouns is based on the research of American anthropologist Serena Nanda in the 1980s, who reported that while Hydra she worked with used a variety of pronouns depending on context when talking amongst themselves, they generally insisted on feminine pronouns from outsiders from their community. Lastly, before we begin, I want to be clear that this episode is not a definitive history of Hydra as a whole. We'll be focusing on the experiences of Hydra in a pretty narrow time and place, and there's a lot of aspects of Hydra experience and identity and history that we won't have time to talk about today. This particularly includes religion, the historic origins of Hydra, and analysis of how Hydra have been discussed in modern Western's queer scholarship, and I hope we can return to these topics at another time. So we're not going to talk about how modern queer scholars have talked about Hydra. Fair enough, and I understand there is a lot to unpack there. Yeah. But we are modern queer scholars, not from South Asia, talking about Hydra. So is there any kind of context you want to give for, like, possible pitfalls that we might fall into? Obviously, you have read and thought about this quite a bit. Irene and I haven't. I think the main thing for us to remember and avoid kind of being simplistic about is the notion of hydra as being a third gender and there just being three genders male female and hydra in this kind of context there's a lot of context to hydra identity some which we'll discuss and some which we won't which includes things around social structure around occupation around religion which as i said we're not going to get into that is not as simple as just being like, yep, this is the third gender. And similarly, there's a lot of 
other genders or gender presentations or subsets of gender or however you want to define them, ways of presenting yourself or ways of being that exist in this part of the world that are not hedra male or female as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the main kind of pitfall to avoid and pitfall that Western scholars can fall into is just that simplistic notion of three genders. So just to kind of keep in mind that like hedra is a small piece of a very sort of broad gender picture that we don't necessarily fully understand as opposed to thinking of it as binary gender plus one. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that there are also pitfalls and complications with using words like trans and transgender Mm. to talk about hedra. Do you want to say anything about that? Just because if you don't, I feel like we might just start doing it and we might as well address that now. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that is fair enough. And I think that's a complicated question and a question that modern hedra are grappling with Mm. today. So... Some hedra describe themselves as trans, some hedra describe themselves as trans women, but some do not, and some would see it as a very distinct thing, that they're not just a woman whose, you know, kind of trans identity can be described as hedra. They're a hedra, a separate thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a complicated conversation. It wouldn't be accurate to say that hedra are trans women. Yeah. Because it's much more complex than that, and having read interviews with modern hedra, definitely not all of them describe themselves in that way. Cool. So like some Hedra might think of themselves as women. Yes. Do any Hedra think of themselves as men? I have read interviews where Hedra say that they are men. Okay. But whether they mean man in the context that we would mean man as in gender, or whether they mean man in the context that we would mean sex, assigned male at birth, I couldn't say. Mm-hmm. Those were very intelligent questions, Eli. Yeah. Well, I am aware that, like, Western scholars talking about gender Mm. will be like, here are Hedra and here are Native American genders and talk about them in very reductive Mm. ways to kind of suit their own ends to give, like, examples about gender diversity existing throughout history. And that is just inevitably going to be most of how we have encountered them because of where Mm. we exist in the world. And so, like, it's totally fine if we're not unpacking all of how modern scholars have talked about them today. Like, obviously, we can't do that. But I think, yeah, it was probably worth saying something. Yeah, I'm glad you brought all of that up because, as I said, I'm not going to really get into modern queer scholarship about Hydra. But the reason I'm not getting into it is because I think there's so much of it and so much to say and unpack and it can become quite theoretical. And I feel like that tacking it on to another conversation about Hydra wouldn't do it justice and wouldn't give us time to kind of unpack everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I'm glad we've addressed it a little, but I hopefully one day would like us to come back to it in what will probably be a pretty dense and academic episode. Yeah. yeah. So you can all look forward to that. Yeah, I think that would be good. But I do think that it does make sense to instead foreground an episode that actually talks about some specific historical hedra and their lives. Like they Mm. are more important than, you know, white people (laughs) theorizing about concepts like third gender and transgender as a, you know, cross cultural concept or whatever. So like fair enough in my opinion. Yeah. I really struggled putting together this episode as Irene and Eli, you would know, because I've been working on this for maybe over a year of trying to make this episode work. And What you've just said is kind of the reason I struggled because I really wanted to present the story of ideally like a hedra in the way Mm. we so often kind of structure episodes about learning about a culture or something through one individual. But I just could not find enough biographical information on any historical hedra to do that. Then I wanted to kind of talk about perhaps a group of hedra, but 
That's kind of what I've ended up doing, but our information about groups of hedra so often comes from colonial records. Mm-hmm. So then I had to kind of get into the colonial attitudes to hedra and look more at that, but I didn't want it just to just be an episode talking about, like, you know, British anti-hedra laws. So it was a struggle, and I've kind of ended up talking about hedra under British colonial rule and British anti-hedra laws as a compromise, mm-hmm. but... Yeah. This is like a compromise episode to what your ideal Hedra episode would look like. Yeah. My ideal Hedra episode definitely would have more information about the experiences of individual Hedra, but that information is not accessible to me and or doesn't exist and was never recorded. Just to ask a super basic question. So Hedra is both the singular and the plural? The plural is actually Hedron, I believe. The normal practice in English is to use Hedra as the singular and the plural. Okay. It's also the case that hedra, so you would have noticed when I started, I said hedra is a South Asian word, a very broad claim. I did notice that, actually. (laughs) I forgot to come back to it. Shocked nobody called me out on it. Ah, yes, the language of South Asia. (laughs) Yes. And what I was just going to trust you that it occurred in multiple languages, so you couldn't say anything. I assumed that too, but I thought I might as well pick at you about it anyway, and and then I forgot to. Yeah, so that was what I meant, was it occurs in multiple South Asian languages, and obviously all those languages have different grammatical structures, and so there may be different plurals in different languages. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a question now, which... You're maybe literally just about to cover, but like what area are hedra in? So hedra are in a pretty wide geographical area. India and Pakistan is the most of it, but also other surrounding countries may have hedra populations. The whole of India or are there particular parts of India? The whole of India. Okay. So in this episode, we're going to focus specifically on the region that is today Uttar Pradesh. Time for a quick geography quiz. What's Uttar Pradesh, guys? North? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so it's a state in the northeast of India. Yeah. If you picture India as being a kind of elongated kite shape, then we are on the top right side of the kite. You are on the kind of northeast side of the country. Yeah, cool. So I want to start off with a bit of background on the colonial sources which we'll be using for most of the content of this episode today. So in 1871, the British government in the northwestern provinces, which is roughly analogous to what is today Uttar Pradesh, passed a law called the Criminal Tribes Act, which was aimed at targeting various minority groups, including Hedra. The targeting of Hedra was explicitly part of a policy to eliminate Hedra through a mixture of approaches, including prosecution of castration, the removal of children from Hedra households, the limiting of Hedra forms of livelihood, and the prohibition of Hedra cultural practices. That's bad. Yes, it's bad. So British official documents at this time often speak of the gradual extinction of Hedra, but they also use more active language like the elimination or extinguishment of Hedra. It really reminds me a lot of kind of the like British colonist and like early white language around indigenous people in Australia. That sort of they're going to like gradually extinct them mm. by mm. Yeah. a sort of process of cultural destruction. I think it's also kind of linked to just the ideas of the time around like social Darwinism and the idea that these, you know, certain groups or races were lesser and were just going to naturally die out. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's really got a kind of abhorrent thing in it where they're like, we're not murdering them. This is just the natural process. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, like they are explicitly like destroying that community. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about ways of destroying that culture. Yeah. Yeah. These British policies are not unique to Hedra in any way. So the Criminal Tribes Act, among other things, required local authorities to keep registers of what they referred to as eunuchs in their area, 
with the understanding that these people were likely to be criminal and needed to be monitored. To quote R. Simpson, secretary to the Lieutenant Governor of the Northwestern Provinces in 1865, it seems to his honour, the Lieutenant Governor, that the first step to prevent an increase in the number of eunuchs and thus gradually lead to their extinction is to have a register carefully prepared in each district of all those now living in it. So eunuchs in this law here were defined as, quote, persons of the male sex who admit themselves or on medical inspection clearly appear to be impotent. That is, in this context, not capable of reproductive sex. So some people may just be eunuchs through no specific intervention in that case. Mm, Yeah, so this wording was specifically designed to also cover intersex people. And as we'll discuss, intersex people often also are hedra. On the flip side, however, not all hedra under this definition were eunuchs. We do know of hedra who had biological children. But in the British mind, there was a strong connection between hedra's gender presentation, assumptions that they engaged in sex with men, and impotence with it being understood that each had the potential to lead to the other. So to quote Norman Shevers, a British doctor working in India in the middle of the 19th century, prostitution of the body in sodomy for several years before or about the period of puberty would unquestionably cause impotence and could also in turn lead to physical effeminacy, according to Norman. Thanks, Norman. (laughs) This thing where people are convinced that having gay sex will, like, change your body Mm. in a like a sort of gendered way. It's always just one of those things where I'm like, the evidence is constantly in front of your eyes that this is not happening. Mm. It's really interesting because Serena Nanda, who I mentioned at the start, who's an anthropologist who interviewed a lot of Hydra in India in the 80s, in her interviews you see very similar beliefs to this amongst the Hydra community. Oh, okay. This idea that they are impotent and this is because they have sex with men. And kind of an understanding of direct cause and effect. But yeah, despite this legal definition that I read at the start of eunuchs as impotent men, sounding quite narrow and medical, the registers themselves, in fact, could include anyone who presented in a feminine way and supported themselves through traditional hedra performance. And later additions to the law specified that as well. So to give you an example, in 1871, three people from the Mirzapur district were placed on the registry of eunuchs. Later on, it was revealed under medical examination that their, quote, masculine power remained intact, but they were ultimately kept on the register, with a British official involved explaining that the fact that these individuals dressing like women and otherwise comporting themselves like eunuchs is perfectly sufficient for them to be defined as impotent men. So while the policies that led to the keeping of these registers were abhorrent, they do leave us with the legacy of documentation of large numbers of hedra living in the northwestern provinces in the 1870s which we are able to refer to as historians. In today's episode, I'll be specifically referring a lot to an 1873 register from the district of Muzaffarnagar. In 1872, the superintendent responsible for this district, a man named W.A. Short, failed to register a single person. As in he did not register one hedra? He did not register one hedra. There was nobody on his list. And when his superiors questioned why, he set out to prove the following year that there was no reason to suspect the local hedra of any crimes and therefore there was no reason to register them. All right. So his 1873 list of hedra is specifically designed to show that these are just regular people who aren't posing a threat to their community. And it provides us with relatively detailed biographies of 11 hedra and actively works against a lot of the biases that we generally see in British reports about hedra that really focus on assumptions of crime and sodomy and sex work. Well, that's such an interesting Mm, document. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately, I've never seen this document itself. It's in an archive in India somewhere or maybe in England. 
I don't know. But there's a scholar named Jessica Hinchy who's written a book about British colonial archives of Hydra and done a lot of work in kind of gathering information from a whole lot of different archives and bringing it together. And she talks a lot about the content of this specific list. So I'm relying on her work for my information. Okay. So using examples from this register and also from other parts of the Northwestern provinces, we're going to have a look at what the life of a Hydra in this region would have looked like in the 19th century under British colonial rule. So the rule of the Northwestern provinces by the British was part of the British Raj, the British colonial rule of India, which was in place for about 100 years from the 1850s until Indian independence in 1947. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, India had been under what was called company rule, the government by the British East India Company. So in the 1600s, the British East India Company was established and began trading in India, setting up more and more trading posts and so on in India, and eventually took over the country. Just a whole company. Just a whole company, just owning a country. That's what was going on. <laughs> it's grim. Yeah. Um, the British at this time had had some presence in India for about 250 years. Do you think Charles wants it back? Probably. Mm. Should we understand it to have basically been, for our simplistic purposes, roughly the same situation in India for the last 200 years? Or should we understand that now, where we are in 1870, we've recently seen a really big shift? Yeah, so there definitely was a shift if we narrow down to talking about attitudes to Hydra, which is what we're talking You're about probably today. Probably for the best, yeah. <laughs> and realistically, what I can comment on, there definitely was a shift from kind of the mid-1800s onwards around attitudes to Hydra, and there were several kind of moral panics around Hydra. There were a few high-profile cases, one involving the murder of a Hydra, which we'll talk about a little bit a bit later on, that kind of brought Hydra into the public eye and then led to kind of unease, moral panic, mm -hmm. and ultimately policies like this targeting Hydra once they became kind of more widely known. Yeah. Um, also specifically in the Northwestern provinces. So the Northwestern provinces as a set of provinces were established in 1836, and those provinces in particular – compared to other provinces around India, happened to be ruled by some very Christian rulers who mm -hmm. had very, don't want to say conservative because that kind of implies a progression that doesn't really exist, but, you know, very, harsh. you'd say, harsh kind of fundamentalist views. They had strong views about binary gender as being something important to enforce. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that was specifically something that was being more heavily enforced in the northwestern provinces yeah, because of the specific governors there. So let's start off looking at our Hydra biographies by looking at the question of when, why, and how people might have entered the Hydra community. Our 11 Hydra in Muzaffarnagar all entered the community in their youth. The youngest recorded being Kwapati moving into the household of Mother Hydra at age two, and the oldest being Piari in her late teens or early 20s. And I do want to mention, as I say these names, I am relying on the way that the British recorded these Indian names mm. in the 19th century. Some of these with the help of Vedi on Twitter, who I would like to thank very much for your assistance. Some of these names they were able to identify as... Indian names that they recognize and they could say, oh, I see that, you know, the British were trying to write down such and such a name. Some of these, who knows what's going on. So I'm doing my best to pronounce these names in a way that's hopefully correct, but some of them are going to be wrong. Cool. So from this age range of Wapati moving into a Hija household at the age of two or Piari in her late teens or early twenties, we can see that there's going to be a range of reasons for people becoming Hydra. Some where they could have had individual agency in that decision and some where they wouldn't have. So this kid was adopted into the household, was sent to the household by someone else? Like how would that have gone about? So one reason that people might 
enter a Hydra household and then subsequently become Hydra is just due to poverty. So Hydra may either adopt orphans or families may give or sell their children into Hydra households if they themselves couldn't afford to raise those kids. Okay. So in the example of Wafati, she was born around 1837 or 1838. We don't know anything about her family background, nor are we given a specific reason that she entered a Hydra household. But we do know that there was significant famine in parts of the northwestern provinces where she grew up in the late 1830s. So it's quite possible that as a result of this famine, she was either orphaned or her family could no longer afford to care for her, and she therefore ended up being raised in a Hydra household instead. In a modern context, Hydra often see sexual attraction to and sexual relationships with men as inherently linked to their Hydra identity and a reason for their becoming Hydra. So Indian anthropologist Gayatri Reddy, who interviewed Hydra in the 2000s, quotes one Hydra named Alia saying, All Hydras desire men, otherwise why do they become Hydras? Given the nature of our 19th century sources, which are bureaucratic records, it's difficult for us to glean information about individuals' sexual orientation or whether attraction to men would lead someone to join the Hydra community in the 19th century. This is also complicated by the fact that British officials often drew a connection between feminine gender presentation, as I've said, and sex with men. To quote one British official, for example, Ellen Octavian Hume, the dancing in public of eunuchs in female clothing afterwards leads to sodomy. Okay, so they will just assume that they're having sex with men. Yes, so they will often accuse Hydra of sodomy, as they call it, or make broad statements about the fact that all Hydra are engaging in sodomy, but whether this is based on any factual knowledge they have or simply on the fact that if they see someone assigned male at birth dressed in feminine clothing, they assume they're having sex with men, we can't say. Okay. I would say there's definitely a level of exaggeration when they make their broad sweeping statements about Mm. all Hydra engaging in sodomy. But we can't really guess at how many Hydra were attracted to men and were sleeping with men. Mm -hmm. We do definitely have evidence of 19th century Hydra having relationships with men. So one high-profile case that I mentioned before concerned the 1852 murder of a Hydra named Bura by her lover, who was a man named Ali Baksh. Ali Baksh was jealous that Bura had tried to leave him for another man. This is obviously a horrific circumstance, and as I mentioned, it ignited moral panic that led to the persecution or more persecution of Hydra. But the trial records do recount the domestic setup of Ali Baksh and Bura's life in the two years before the murder and show that they were living together domestically as a couple. So we do have that evidence of a domestic relationship between a hedra and a man that seems quite analogous in a lot of ways to a heterosexual domestic relationship. Mm-hmm. Although relationships with men are often considered the norm for hedra, modern hedra, especially older hedra, interviewed by Reddy, also present an ideal of chastity or asexuality. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So Amir, a hedra nayak, which is a senior in the community, commented to Reddy that Real hedras should have no mental or physical desire for men whatsoever. It's so interesting that you have some hedra being like, well, obviously you're attracted to men, so you become a hedra. Why else would you do it? And somebody else being like, real hedra never have sex. Yeah, and the way Reddy reports this, having talked to hedra in the 2000s, the older hedra would make these statements, these idealized statements of, you know, hedra don't have sex, hedra aren't attracted to men, I've never had sex with anyone. And the younger Hedra would say, no, Hedra sleep with men. We're Hedra because we sleep with men. But then the older Hedra talking about each other would be like, oh, no, no, no. She definitely used to have sex with men all the time. So is this like an appeal to respectability? I think it's a bit of that. But also like from our 19th century sources, this ideal of 
chastity or asexuality has existed in the community for a long time. It also existed in the 19th century. So I guess it is kind of these older, more senior hedra appealing to respectability or sort of more trying to present their community in the way they think their community should be and to some degree kind of police the behavior of the community and then the reality obviously not living up to that. So we should think of this, I guess, it's a little bit like Catholic priests. They're not supposed to be having sex. Many of them are doing it. (laughs) I would say it's less like Catholic priests in that it's not that they're like not allowed to have sex. It's just that they see the ideal for Hedra as being chastity. They're like a good Hedra wouldn't do this, but loads of them do. The same way that societies have opinions about what like a good woman is doing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's more accurate. Yeah. Mm, Okay. And why is that something that they... Prize. So we've talked a lot about how, you know, like these outside British colonial, mm. you know, documents and so forth condemn them for being involved in sodomy. So obviously we know that they have this negative view of like hydrosexuality because, you know, we know how the British thinks about sodomy. But is there something different going on internally in the community that makes them prize chastity or celibacy or asexuality or whatever? Yeah. I won't get into the details of it because the answer is religion essentially. Yeah. And I didn't feel qualified to try and understand and then present to you yeah. Hydra religion or Indian religion. Sure. Because, you know, yeah. there's a lot going on. It's quite complicated. It's quite complicated. I can learn it by reading three books. Yeah, but the answer is that it's very much a religious asceticism. And okay. to put it broadly, I've mentioned that Hydra perform at certain life cycle moments like births and marriages. And at those performances, they bless people with fertility. And there's this kind of link between them not having sex and them therefore being able to kind of share fertility with others rather than having it themselves, if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. No, that makes sense. But yeah, I don't want to speak too much on that because I don't feel super qualified when there's also a lot of religious background. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's something that has internal religious meaning to the group. Yeah. As with sex with men, it's difficult for us to know whether Hydra were like performing this ideal of chastity and asexuality it's not really going to be reported that people aren't having sex. Anthropologists writing in the 19th century do tell us that this ideal existed, but we just can't really get the information on how that played out for Hydra in their actual day-to-day lives. Interestingly, none of the 11 Hydra registered in Muzafanaga are described as having romantic or sexual relationships. This may be linked to this ideal of asexuality, but it also may be an attempt by the record keeper to absolve them of potential accusations of sodomy. Yeah. We really can't know what's missing from that, what's been deliberately left out of that, and what just, you know, didn't exist and therefore wasn't reported on. Although it isn't seen as typical or traditional behavior, I also want to mention that some Hydra do and did in the 19th century have relationships with women. So records from the Allahabad district in the northwestern provinces, for example, in 1881, report four Hydra who had biological children living with them, indicating relationships with women. So overall, to sum that up, we don't have the sources to know if and how individual Hydra's sexual orientations may have motivated them in the 19th century to join Hydra communities, although we can definitely see that's a factor in people becoming Hydra today. It's very possible that either a lack of attraction to women or attraction to men could have also been a factor for Hydra entering the community in the 19th century, especially those we see entering the community in their teens or early 20s when they would probably have had some say in that matter. So someone can become a Hydra at any age? Yeah, so the examples in this district we're discussing range, as I said, from like 2 to late teens or early 20s, but we do have examples of people becoming Hydra in their 20s or 30s. Okay. And I guess that could continue into, you know, as late in life as you want. Okay. Can you stop? Like, should we understand 
people who are given to hydra communities as babies to have any agency at all? Not all children who are given to hydra households or grow up in hydra households do become hydra. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if we look at the Muzafanaga district, we see the household of a Hydra named Moti, who lived with a child named Aladia. So, for some background on this household, a man named Pierbacht had originally asked Moti to take in his widowed sister-in-law and Aladia, who was her son. When the sister-in-law died, Pierbacht and his children also moved in with Moti. So, when you say a Hydra household, is that like... Any household with a hydra in it. So in this example that I'm talking about right now, there's only one hydra in a household with several people who aren't hydra. Mm -hmm. But quite often, more generally, hydra do live in households of hydra. Okay. So generally, if I say a child in a hydra household, it would be a child in a household with multiple hydra and Mm -hmm. a child and multiple children. But there is definitely variation. So we do also see households like this one. We do also see there's another household in this district, which is recorded, where there's a 15-year-old hydra who's living with her guru, an older hedra, and also with her mum and her brother. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole variety of potential okay. households. So there are a hedra household could be any kind of household. Yeah. Just a household that has hedra in it. Yeah. So in this household we're looking at now, we've got Moti, we've got Pierbaksh, we've got Pierbaksh's kids, and we've got Pierbaksh's nephew, Aladia. So Moti was actually involved in arranging Aladia's marriage to a woman. So this shows us that Aladia was not growing up to become a hedra because hedra generally don't marry women. So despite having moved in with his mum to live with Moti and being raised in that household, Aladia didn't grow up to become a hedra. What about a kid who was brought in to say like a household with multiple hedra adults in it? And no non-hedra adults? Yeah, like if, if you're talking about a child who has grown up in a household with, I don't know, three adult hedra, would that be a normal household? That would definitely be a normal household. I don't have specific examples of whether such a child definitely would or may not become a hedra. I'm not Sure. So on a kind of similar note to our conversation about sexuality, in a modern context, some of Reddy's interviewees pointed to their interest in childhood in playing with girls and doing feminine coded tasks like cooking and cleaning as a step on their path to becoming hedra. Mm-hmm. So similar to saying, you know, I was attracted to men, therefore I became a hedra. I was interested in feminine things, therefore I became a hedra. This is often alongside mentioning attraction to men. So we're sort of just saying that like people at the beginning of their path to becoming a hedra, they're like, I wasn't interested in sort of fulfilling masculine obligations in society in some way. I feel like it's less negative than that. Well, like there was a way that I wanted to be outside of masculine like expectations for men. To look at Reddy's interviewees, they focus pretty strongly around sex with men. Okay. And for some of them, that does include sexual abuse by men as something they see as a step on their path to becoming a hedra. Oh, okay. But overall, I would say that these modern hedra at least have more of a focus on like, I was interested in sleeping with men or I always spent time with girls and was interested in feminine activities. I guess what I'm saying is they didn't really focus on like, I wasn't behaving appropriately for a man. They focused more on I was behaving like a woman. Okay. If that makes sense. It's a nuanced distinction, but I feel like it is a distinction. No, that makes sense. So, as I said before as well, some modern hedra explicitly identify themselves as women as well as hedra, and some of them see things associated with being hedra, such as castration and wearing feminine clothing, as specifically aiming to make themselves appear more like cis women. Whereas some others may see these as just things that are hedra things to do. So, other hedra see themselves as neither men nor women and may have a more mixed gender expression. So that's in a modern context. In the 19th century context, as with sexuality, it's quite difficult for us to know about how individual hedra understood their gender identities. 
Mm-hmm. and whether this may have led them to seek out and join Hydra communities. British colonial records have no way of capturing this data and they don't make any attempt to capture this data. Like, I don't even know what that would look like, to be honest. Mm. But I just wanted to mention, since it is a factor for modern Hydra, that it likely was a factor for these historical Hydra. Yeah. As I've touched on before, another reason people might become Hydra is if they are intersex. 19th century records suggest that intersex children, which they generally refer to as hermaphrodites or born eunuchs, may be given to Hydra to raise. So of our 11 Hydra in Muzafanaga, one, Piari, seems likely to be intersex. While the other three members of Piari's household were all Hydra who were castrated as children, Piari is described as a hermaphrodite, with no mention of castration in her biography. As I mentioned before, Piari joined the Hydra community in her late teens or early 20s, suggesting perhaps she had an intersex variation that didn't become apparent until puberty. I also want to mention that this is one kind of situation where a person assigned female at birth may become a Hydra if they have an intersex variation that becomes apparent later in life. And I think that's something worth keeping in mind when we're talking about that simplification of just referring to hedra as trans women yeah Yeah. not all hedra are people assigned male at birth there's more variation than that it's also worth noting that many hedra who had undergone castration may have chosen to represent themselves as intersex to prevent prosecution for castration which was illegal under british rule hinchy's analysis of archival sources found that hedra described as eunuchs by birth were often clustered together in ways that didn't appear to represent a realistic demographic distribution of intersex people, but rather a conscious decision to protect themselves and each other from this prosecution. And 19th century anthropologists also report that there was some prestige amongst Hydra themselves afforded to Hydra who were intersex. I would like more information on that. I don't have much. Coming back to Wafati, as I mentioned, another reason for people to grow up in Hydra households and then subsequently become Hydra may be poverty, that they were given to a Hydra household by their family to raise or that they were orphans and ended up in a Hydra household because there was no one to raise them or no one could afford to raise them. So it's likely that this was the case for Wafati. She moved into the household of a Hydra named Chudlagan when she was around two. And in 1873, now in her 30s, she was living in a house with Piari, who I just mentioned, and two other Hydra. She and her household owned two gardens and a house and supported themselves through rent on these properties as well as through traditional performance. If we assume that Wafati was orphaned or given up by her family due to poverty, this lifestyle that she was leading in 1873 is a level of social security that she would almost certainly not have otherwise been able to achieve. This was not just due to the income available from Hydra performance, but also due to the supportive social structure built into the Hydra community. So moving on from our conversation about why people may become Hydra, I wanted to have a look at this structure. So I mentioned that Wafati moved in with a Hydra named Chatlagan at the age of two. Chatlagan was Wafati's guru, meaning master or teacher, while Wafati would be referred to as Chatlagan's chela, meaning disciple. So every person becoming a Hydra is taken on by a guru in this way. The guru-chela relationship was a mutually beneficial one. Chatlagan raised Wafati, provided her with a place to live, and taught her to perform, which would have enabled her to earn a living. Wafati, in return, would have performed domestic chores in Chadlagan's house, and once she began to receive income, shared it with her. American anthropologist Serena Nanda in the 1980s found that gurus also teach and enforce Hydra gender norms amongst their chalas. She quotes one Hydra, Kamal, who describes an experience of being chastised by her guru. Her guru saying, what, are you a man that you cannot do such things properly? Such things referring to feminine coded tasks like cooking and feminine presentation like keeping her head covered when she was out. This kind of behavior policing that we see in a modern context may also align with comments by Indian ethnologist Bimbai Kirparam in 1901 that new Hydra undergo a 6 to 12 month probationary period where their behavior is carefully monitored. So after 6 to 12 months it's possible that your guru might be like I don't know if you're cut out for this Hydra life. I don't have any examples of that happening but I guess that's what's implied there yeah. Mm, Okay. 
There are modern examples, if we look at the work of Nanda and Reddy, of Chellas deciding they're not having it with their guru and finding a different guru. Okay. Yeah. I don't know of examples the other way around, interestingly, but they probably exist. Yeah. I'm assuming it happens, but... Yeah. And there is actually, in a modern context, I don't know if this exists in the 19th century, a formalized system in place to change gurus. Oh, okay. Guru paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you are intersex in this cultural context, can you simply not become a hedra? I would assume so. Okay. But I don't know. It might depend on, like, what your intersex variation is or... Yeah, it would probably depend on what your intersex variation was and also just on your individual family. Because, like, as we said, people may give intersex children to Hydra to raise and those children may grow up to become Hydra. Yeah. But if your individual mum and dad didn't want to give up their baby to someone else, they may have just decided not to. Yeah. So I think it would depend on both the intersex variation and the individual family. Okay. So, gurus and their chalas, of which they may have several, and even their chalas chalas, which are known as nati chalas, would often form a household. And they often use, in the modern day, I don't know if this happened in the 19th century, but in the modern day, often use kinship terms to refer to this household. So, if you and another hedra share a guru, you would call each other your sisters, for example. Okay, yeah. So, to use an example of a household from the Muzafanaka district, after the death of Chadlagan, Wafati moved in with a new guru, Amir Baksh, who had previously lived with Chaplagan, perhaps sharing a guru themselves. We don't know when or how they came to live together. Also in the household were two other chalas of Amir Baksh, Jawaha and Piari, who we mentioned before. And even if members of the household moved away, they may continue to stay in touch and gather together on special occasions as a sort of multi-generational family. Would Hedra also stay in touch with their birth families? Or they've like left that family and got a new family? Some would and some would. Okay. Yeah, it varies. So some absolutely cut ties with their birth families, and we see examples, we'll talk a little bit later about the removal of children from Hedra households. We'll see examples where children are removed from a Hedra household and their birth family doesn't want them back. But on the flip side, like I also talked before about that household where there was a young Hedra, her guru, and her mum and her brother. So obviously she's still living with her birth family. So it varies depending on the family. So, outside sources often hone in on gender presentation as the defining trait of Hedra. But Hedra interviewed by Nanda in the 1980s often see these guru-chala relationships as one of the most defining traits of Hedrahood. So, while there's variation amongst occupation, gender presentation, whether or not they're castrated, and other traits generally associated with Hedra, to quote Kamal, that modern Hedra who we mentioned before, to belong to the Hedra community, you must have a guru. So, that's one thing that's not up for negotiation, where many other aspects of being a hedra or traits that are commonly associated with hedra are performed to different degrees by various hedra. And this specific association of hedra with guru-chala relationships is especially the case because there were and are various other gender non-conforming groups who have some traits in common with hedra, including groups that also dress in feminine ways and perform in similar contexts to hedra, but don't have these guru-chala relationships and are not hedra. Okay. So that's one thing that sets Hydra apart from some of these other communities. So could it possibly happen that you would want to become a Hydra and you would go to find a guru and you wouldn't find one Um, who was ready to take you on or? It's generally in a modern context and probably would be similar in the 19th century context, quite beneficial for a guru to take a chela on because as I mentioned, a chela will help out around the house, do a lot of domestic tasks and also be expected to share their income with their guru. Okay. okay. So it's quite beneficial for a guru. In some modern discussions, some chalas do see these relationships as quite exploitative. Mm, Okay. 
So it's more like it's good for a guru to have a chela, and a chela needs a guru to become a part of the community. So it's probably not yeah. the case that people are locked out of the community by not being able to find a guru. No, I'm not aware of that happening. Okay. Is there like specific knowledge that gurus are passing on, which is what makes these other like similar groups of gender nonconforming people not hydra because they don't have or use that knowledge? Or is it simply the social structure? I mean, I think there would be knowledge, but I don't have that knowledge because nobody's passed it on to me. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. That's <laughs> I, assume- <laughs> I assume there is specific knowledge and the gurus are definitely kind of teaching their chalas how to be hydra. So we talked before about how they're kind of policing certain behaviours, but they're also teaching their chalas how to, you know, do the traditional performances that Hedra do and yeah. connecting them with the rest of the community, connecting them with the people who might perform their castration, which we'll talk about a bit later on. So, you know, they're definitely providing them with things that they need to be Hedra, if that makes mm, sense. Okay. And also, on top of that, the Guru Chala system is part of a broader system where each Hedra lineage, so, you know, a lineage of Guru to Chala to Chala to Chala, yeah. is part of one of seven Hedra houses. This is a simplistic explanation of something that is more complicated. In some cities, there might be only four of these houses or something like that. But, you know, generally speaking, people say there's seven houses. But not Um, all of them are in every location, kind of. Yeah, and there's sub-houses and so on. All right, all right, sure. Yeah, so each house has its own kind of historic mythic founder, their own kind of mythological origin story and specific rules that they might follow around, things like dress and so on. Within individual cities, each house or perhaps a lineage within that house would also have a specific territory where they perform and collect budhai, which is the payment for their performance. So you really kind of have to have a guru and be part of this structure to function as a hedra. That makes yeah. sense. And how far back do these houses go? I don't know. And if you're one of these like other groups of gender diverse people who aren't hedra, mm. I mean... Obviously, the episode isn't about them, so I imagine that your knowledge is pretty limited, but, like, do they have a worse time of it because they don't have these strong community ties and kind of the legitimacy that comes with this historical precedent of, like, being part of a house and therefore having territory and stuff, or... There are pretty comparable structures. This house structure, for example, so they're called Garanas. I know that some, like, performing groups also have this house structure. Comparable structures exist in other groups. Mm -hmm. There is one group which is quite similar to Hedron, which often come up in the 19th century records kind of with the lines blurred, which are called Zananas. So Zananas don't have this guru cella structure, but they're more likely to retain stronger ties with their biological families, perhaps marry and have children. So I guess they've got a different support structure in place. So I think, you know, if we looked in detail into any of these kind of gender non-conforming groups – we they, would sort of find how they, like, fitted into... Yeah, how they're working within society and supporting themselves and so mm, on, yeah. and what their structures are to make that work. It's not the case that, like, other gender-diverse similar groups are, like, not in as good a position. Hydra is not, like, the optimal. No, yeah. Hydra is just one of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And when I mentioned, for example, in Pakistan that the word Hydra generally isn't used, the word they prefer to use there is Khawaja Sarai, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. And the reason there's a lot of kind of historic cultural background here, but broadly speaking, the reason for that choice of word is because that is associated with another group of gender diverse people, 
eunuchs in the Mughal courts who were afforded more prestige and were generally doing better for themselves than Hydra. Okay, so Hydra might be a prestige group in some areas, but not universally, or... There's variation. Yeah, I guess. yeah, there's okay. variation. I don't think it will be realistic to refer to Hydra as a prestige group in the time period we're talking about. Yeah, no, that's... Although, you know, traditionally they may have been afforded some prestige. Yeah, fair enough. So to finish off our discussion of kind of Hydra social structures... Each of these houses in each city is headed by a Nayak. I mentioned a quote from a Hedron Nayak before, if you remember. And the Nayaks of the city form a Jamaat, which is a council of elders, which would handle disputes, map out territory for their house, and do other similar things. I love how bureaucratic this is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even get into the bureaucracy around, like, fees of becoming a Hedra. The Chela pays money to their guru, who pays money to the Jamaat. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff going on. (laughs) It's quite bureaucratic. So I haven't found reference to this exact setup of Nikes and a Jamaat in the 19th century sources, but the British sources definitely do suggest that there was some kind of community-wide organizational structure. So in 1860, for example, the Inspector General of Police in the Northwestern Provinces reports that Hydra had, quote, a government of their own, including what he called a king in Delhi and deputies under this king in various cities and then gurus under those deputies. Okay. A king. <laughs> a king, yeah. I'm thinking that's just like the word he's chosen for whoever the top. Yeah, I think that's just the language he's familiar with that he would use to talk about the most important person in a community. He's like, oh, yes, it's the Hydra king. Yeah, But even the idea of there being one number one Hydra is quite interesting. Yeah, Yeah. given that it seems like more realistically there probably would be seven. That's true. I don't know. I was interested in finding more information about this supposed king. This is not the only reference to the king. There's another one in the British sources that talks about the king. But I could not figure out, was there really a king? Yeah, maybe Britain's (laughs) just like, that's what you do. You have kings, right? Which they have recently reaffirmed as a reasonable way to be. Yeah. Maybe they're like, mm, there's this group of people that have their own social structure. It's got to be a monarchy. It's the only way. Yeah. It's like what we did to bees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least we didn't make it the king bee. It used to be the king bee. Why did we change it? Because they figured out that, that she had babies. Yeah. Oh, and they're like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I read about this once in a thing about how, you know, sex is socially constructed and how we've tried to make the animal kingdom have a sex binary <laughs> that just, like, can't function. Where, we are desperately mapping the sex binary onto bees in a pretty deranged yeah. yeah, yeah, Well, where, like, they used to, like, I don't, you know, a long time ago, like in the 19th century or whatever, because, like, the queen bee is, like, the biggest of the bees, mm. they were like, well, that's clearly a very masculine bee. So it must be the king bee. And then they did some bee research and they were like, oh, no. <laughs> Labs, it's a queen bee. <laughs> and that, like, presumably broke their little minds. Yeah. This is just, like, very funny to think about how these people would have dealt with any of the vast array of animals where, like, the female of the species is significantly bigger. Like, there's so many. Or the spiders. Yeah. Or, yeah. I, I mean, I have, like, <laughs> thought about whether it would be insane to do an episode about, like, the history of, like sexual taxonomy in the animal kingdom because i i assume that there's an answer to your question this is yeah. nothing to do with hydra at all <laughs> obviously we've gone fully off into like hyenas now for some reason <laughs> but you know I, I assume this was something that they tried to explain away or that if yeah. they didn't you know they would characterize like with spiders or something like that like people even talk today in a derogatory way about female spiders like yeah in a kind of like weirdly 
sexualized, you know, femme fatale kind of way. Yeah, they, they so do, yeah. <laughs> like, there's a reason why Black Widow, the superhero, is called Black Widow. That's true, yeah. It's because of the weird spider thing. There you go. So anyway, Hydra. Yep. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about the presence of children in Hydra households, and I now want to talk about the British reaction to that. Oh. Obviously, we don't want to make, like, a lot of comparisons to non-Indian trans people, but some of this feels very similar to current american reactions to trans yeah people. yeah sort of current american trans moral panic situation yeah yeah absolutely which i guess like it's you know kind of not that surprising a parallel like it's almost a reaction of the same culture to mm. gender diversity just in a different time yeah yeah but yeah i think it kind of like makes it hit extra hard because mm. we can see this sort of stuff unfold yeah. Uh, yeah. live yeah yeah i wish to clarify just in case our listeners who are largely american get mad that i understand that 19th century british culture and modern american culture are not the same thing but i feel like they are quite closely linked yeah they're definitely related we know you through the tea don't worry we're, we're aware <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so british authorities were very concerned about the presence of children in hydra households based around this fear that hydra were kidnapping children castrating them and then forcing them into a life of sex work. Yeah, that sounds like a moral panic. So from the mid-1860s onwards, the colonial government began removing children from Hydra households. Removed children would either be returned to their biological families, placed with another family perceived as respectable, or placed with religious, most often Christian groups. Removed children were kept under surveillance to ensure they didn't make further contact with the Hydra community. But after removal, in reality, they generally disappear from the archival record, and we don't actually know what became of them. So these removals were ostensibly to protect Indian children from the combined threats of kidnapping, castration, and sex work, corrupting them into a life of crime. Judge Edward Clive Bailey, for example, referred to the threat of Hydra to, quote, the youngest and favorite child of respectable Hindu parents, carried off forcibly their dearest affections and most cherished feelings violated to the utmost. I just really don't feel like this guy gives a a single hoot (laughs) about Indian children, first of all. (laughs) No, absolutely. You're right. And we do see that, like, once children are in a Hydra household, they quickly shift in the rhetoric from being these innocent people who need to be protected to being the criminals themselves. Yeah. To being, like, deviant children. Yeah. So, to quote another British official, W.G. Proben, who is the magistrate of the Shahajanapa district, innocent victims frequently become themselves the propagators of crime in its most vicious and unnatural form. I mean, I guess there's a kind of internal logic to this, where in order for this to be a fear, it must be possible for the innocent child to become the criminal. Yeah, and that is the fear. The fear is the corruption of children into criminals. The fear is often pretty explicitly framed as this idea that Hydra, who cannot bear biological children, although we know that's not necessarily true, perpetuate their race, and they do sometimes call it a race, by kidnapping and castrating children because they can't do the normal thing, having kids. Like, that's really how it's understood, that they're kind of taking in children and making those children into Hydra in this perverse mockery of biological reproduction. Are these still current rhetorics used against Hydra communities today? I believe to some degree, yes. Yeah, I'm not super across the situation for Hydra today, but yes, I understand this rhetoric hasn't fully gone away. Okay. But yeah, to quote S.N. Martin, who was the magistrate of Muzaffarnagar in 1865, emasculation is the means by which eunuchs continue the race of eunuchs. So that's what they understood was happening here to these kids. When they say emasculation, do they mean castration? Yeah. 
Yeah. So this idea that children in Hydra households would become corrupted and themselves be criminals was much more played out if those children were either intersex or castrated than if they weren't. So we see an example from Gonda where a kid who was two years old, an intersex kid living in a Hydra household, was placed on the register of eunuchs, which, as we've mentioned, is a register essentially for suspected criminals as a two-year-old. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. The two-year-old's crimes. Because they're intersex and living in a Hydra household, so they're, you know... Gonna grow up to become a hedra, therefore they're gonna grow up to become a criminal. On the flip side, we have an example of an 18 year old who was removed from a hedra household as a child, the idea of you're removing a child to protect them, because they weren't castrated, they weren't intersex, they were understood as still being able to just go. As redeemable. As redeemable, Mm. yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's basically the case that, like, if you're castrated or you're intersex, you're seen as, like, inherently criminal, like, physically criminal. Yeah, yeah. And there were concerns once they removed these kids from their Hydra families or their Hydra households, however you want to define that, of, in some cases, keeping them separate from other children for fear they would corrupt other children. So if they were, rather than going into a family, if they were going into, like, a Christian children's home, for example, which did happen to some, there were concerns about how they would be kept separate from the other kids. So what we've got here is solitary confinement for criminal two-year-olds. I don't think that exact extreme played out, but yes, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Mm. Kids being isolated because they're understood to be criminals for things that they don't have control over. Yeah, this idea of just like people as social contagion Mm. is just so disgusting yeah and it's really so dangerous absolutely and it's really explicitly clear in the way the british talk about hydra they use a lot of language around dirt and disease Mm. and that kind of thing in talking about hydra as a people yeah and i think also this kind of idea of their bodies being inherently criminal Mm, yeah and we also see this kind of combination of a desire or a performed desire to protect children and an idea of these children as criminal as playing out in a confused way on the one person sometimes. So in the town of Basti, a 10-year-old child named Dipia, who was castrated, was removed from their Hydra household, indicating that the government viewed them as somebody who, you know, as you said, was quote-unquote redeemable and required protection, but they were also placed on the register of eunuchs, which was a register for adults and indicated that they were considered a suspected criminal. So we get this kind of contradictory reaction to these kids. like both clearly a child and clearly a eunuch, and they're like, "Mm, let's treat it like both. Yeah. So just to talk a bit about the real situations behind these British fears, it is the case that the kidnapping of children did occur. At least one of the biographies we have of Hydra and Muzafanaga does attest to this. Kariman, who was born in about 1822, was kidnapped from her home in the city of Rampur around the age of seven. The kidnapper was a Banjara, which is a nomadic ethnic group who were, like Hydra, targeted by the Criminal Tribes Act, which undermined their traditional ways of life. This Banjara sold Kariman to a Hydra, who would go on to become Kariman's guru. We have two other examples of Hydra from Muzafanaga, whose biographies refer to them being bought and sold by other Hydra, but don't necessarily specify how they first ended up in this situation. So, for example, Faison's biography begins at the age of six, when she's sold by one Hydra, Kishali, to another, Silhu, who then, when she's ten, gives her to another Hydra, Chanda, who becomes her guru. I mean, you did mention before that a lot of Hydra see the kind of guru-chela relationship as being quite exploitative for the chela. Mm, Yeah, and I think there definitely is the potential for that to be the case. And in these examples where a child has been sold to a guru, that definitely could 
have been a pretty horrific relationship. Yeah, I feel like you can kind of see how that's playing out. Yeah. There is also some kind of linguistic line blurring here in that the word chela can also be used to refer to a slave and guru as slave master. Oh, okay. okay. So the language also blurs the conversation around exactly what's going on. So it's not always super clear in a document like this then whether this is a hedra we're talking about or this is like... I would say that in these examples it is always a hedra we're talking about and in this conversation about slavery in this area and this time and this context, it's not a lifelong condition where you are a slave in the household and therefore you're a slave forever and that's it. So, for example, Faison, who was bought and sold as a child, eventually grew up in this Hydra household and took on her own chalas and just seems to have functioned as a Hydra guru as any other Hydra guru. So Faison's kind of been bought into the household, but she isn't owned in a kind of chattel slavery way yeah once she's in the household of her guru she seems to just be you know another part of that household similar to any cella would have been in that household yeah Mm. so like a subservient relationship and not like like an indentured servant even let alone a slave yeah but obviously you know there's definitely some blurring of lines of you know consent and personal agency and like personal freedom in these contexts I mean, I think that's kind of, in some ways, like an inherent risk of any hierarchical relationship, that it has the potential to be exploitative. Mm, Yeah. Especially in a context where you're relying on, say, your guru as the person you need to bring you into the community. Yeah, yeah. And also the person who's giving you your, like, your housing, your, you know, your kind of livelihood in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, you know, guru-child relationships can also be very positive and some of the modern Hedra who have been interviewed by people like Nanda and Reddy talk really positively about the support they get from their gurus, but also it could be very negative. Yeah, but, you know, that's true of parent-child relationships, broadly speaking. (laughs) So not to open up a can of worms, but Mm. what's the deal with slavery in India at this time? Yeah, so this definitely isn't like an isolated example of slavery or potential slavery in a community where slavery doesn't otherwise exist. Like, we have similar situations of, like, people being kidnapped or bought or sold or that kind of thing. There's not slavery on the level that, you know, we see in the Americas, for example, but there is slavery. Yeah, It's also complicated by the fact that the British have outlawed slavery in India, but really they've mostly just changed the words they use to describe the people that they've enslaved in India. Okay, normal British behaviour. Yeah, so that's kind of muddying the conversation about slavery because the British are sort of saying, oh no, we have these voluntary labourers and we have this kind of thing, these indentured servants, but they don't want to say slavery is going on because technically it's not technically it's illegal but yeah it's not as though this is an example of slavery in a society otherwise without slavery as for the claims that children were being castrated and forced into sex work British sources themselves struggled to substantiate this fear. In the northwestern provinces, an 1871 report found that only 3% of male children in Hydra households were being prostituted And among 61 children in Hydra households who the British understood as male, only one was castrated. That said, we definitely do see that children were being castrated. So as I mentioned before, there's three Hydra in our 11 of Muzaffarnagar, who it explicitly says in their biography that they were castrated. And for all three, it was done when they were under 18. 
So it's definitely going on. Children are being kidnapped. Children are being castrated. But it doesn't seem to be going on on the scale that the British understand and fear and fear monger that it's going on. So it's like it's not a it's not kind of systemic practice. Yeah. The British themselves kind of acknowledge this. To quote Alan Octavian Hume again, the magistrate of the Etowah district in 1866, he says, It is not to be supposed that all are emasculated against their will or without their consent. Ten at least of the 78 in Etowah underwent the operation at their own desire after they were well grown up, and two of them when they were past 30. Can we just take a minute to make fun of this guy's name? Can you say it again? Alan Octavian Hume. Yep, I just wanted oh, yeah. to bring that to our attention and we go on. So in Kinchu's book, she generally refers to people just by their initials and their surname. I think that's because in a lot of these records, that's all we get. And so that's kind of what she's gone with for everyone. So I was like looking up all these different magistrates just to find out their full names. And every time it was just such a like little like lucky dip scenario of what nonsense British name <laughs> will I get today? <laughs> It's also worth noting that although it was a focus of the British, in the 19th century, as today, not all hedra were castrated. So despite being on a register of eunuchs of our 11 hedra in Muzaffarnagar, only three are specifically described as being castrated. The other eight, we have no idea. So they may not have been castrated or they may have not been provided that information because of the illegality of castration. We just don't know. For those who were castrated, I do want to talk a little bit about what that practice looked like. This information comes from a mix of more modern sources and 19th century sources. But what information we have from the 19th century does suggest that the practices were pretty similar. So a novitiate hedra undergoing castration is called a nervin, which is a word which refers to liberation from human consciousness to a higher level of consciousness. So you... Nirvana. Yeah, like Nirvana. Yeah. yeah, same word. The castration is sometimes performed by the Nirvan's own guru, but more often by a hedra who specializes in castration, who's known as a dai, which means midwife. These midwives were recognized more generally in Indian colonial society as having specialist medical knowledge. So this dai, are they just doing castration or are they a midwife in like a it's, literal sense? It's the same word, but they're not delivering babies. Okay. But they are called a midwife and there are like ritual similarities between castration and childbirth. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a okay. lot of similar things like after you give birth, you're expected to have a, this 40-day recovery period where you only eat certain foods and you basically stay within your house. But you are um, giving birth to yourself in this context. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. are they the mother or the baby or both in this instance? I guess they're the mother and that they do do the same recovery process as a mother. But yeah. but they are clearly giving birth to themselves because who else could it be? I guess they're also the baby. And then following that recovery process for a hedra, they then go through many of the same rituals as a wedding. So they dress up like a bride and they have like the henna art done on their hands like an Indian bride does and everything. So what happens is that they are castrated. They go through this sort of ritual recovery period similar to a woman who's just given birth. Yeah. And then following that period, they are kind of ritually having a bride. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of just like sort of speed running a bunch of womanhood rituals. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's one way to look at it. Yeah. (laughs) So the operation itself is generally preceded by sacrifices and rituals to Bahuchara Mata, who's the mother goddess strongly associated with Hedra. 
Then the nervon enters a trance-like state and the operation is performed. Colonial physicians mention various techniques that dyes use for numbing during the procedure, including very cold water and the use of cannabis, as well as methods of stopping hemorrhaging and treating the wound, such as the use of hot oil, certain tree barks, and washing with warm water. In a modern context, and I don't know if this existed in the 19th century, there are also alternative ceremonies for people who don't have a penis and testes, so wouldn't undergo castration, but are, you know, in the Hydra community doing a similar thing, and they involve similar rituals, but with elaborate ear and nose piercings instead Mm. of castration. Okay, so that might be for a person who's intersex. Yeah, yeah. Finally, as for the British claims regarding the fact that children were being forced into sex work and the strong association between hedra and sex work more generally, this was linked to just a strong association in the British mind between feminine gender presentation, sex between people assigned male at birth, and sex work. So it's not necessarily the case that hedra were actually engaging in sex work on a large scale, but more that hedra traits were traits that the British generally associated with sex work. So it doesn't appear that hedra are doing sex work? or Hedra, quite likely, I would say, were doing some sex work, but similar to castration and kidnapping, not on the scale that the British painted them to be. It's not like an inherent part of what Hydra do. Mm. So like in an 1861 government report, for example, they found that Hydras or eunuchs earn a livelihood by the habitual and unconcealed practice of prostituting their persons. And in the modern day, it is the case that many Hydra do support themselves through sex work, but we just can't really tell from the 19th century records, given British biases, on what scale Hydra were engaging in sex work at the time. The British were inclined to assume that if they saw someone assigned male at birth dressed in feminine clothing and dancing in public, that that person was soliciting for sex. And in actual fact, they were maybe just doing the usual hedra performances. Yeah, and have nothing to do with sex. Yeah. Yeah, so it's very difficult for us to know. On the topic of performance, I do want to talk a bit about hedra performance now. Hedra traditionally perform song and dance at certain life cycle events such as weddings, the births of male children, and also at specific agricultural and religious festivals. Modern hedra performances at births are described by Serena Nanda as being crass and satirical in nature, playing on the double standards expected of Indian women of denial or oppression of sexuality juxtaposed with an expectation that a woman's main role is to marry and bear children. As well as gender roles, they also mock class and caste distinctions and the potentially fraught relationships between new brides and their in-laws. 19th century performances are also, as with modern performances, described as being quite obscene and sexualized and kind of mocking of women and women's roles and were probably similar in nature. Interesting. Okay. So like one example that Serena Nanda uses to describe how Hedra are kind of satirizing the role of women is Hedra like putting a pillow up their sari to imitate pregnancy and kind of satirize the experiences of women during pregnancy and the expectations on women to give birth to children. Mm-hmm. These performances, despite their mocking nature, are designed to offer blessings of fertility. In payment, Hydra receive badhai, which are gifts in the forms of food, cloth, or money. This is, like, just in terms of sort of what it is, it's very interesting that it's this performance that's, like, satirizing the entire institution that you're asking for their blessing on. Yeah, I don't know what to take away from that, but yeah, it is interesting that that's what's happening. <laughs> There's also kind of an element of threat involved, that if you don't pay badhai, they will curse you with infertility. That's okay, okay. So people don't invite Hydra to their house when they have a wedding or have a baby. Hydra are just like going through the paper looking for announcements and being like, (laughs) better go and perform at their house. Yeah, the Hydra turn up, they do their performance, they require this payment in order for blessings of fertility, and there are kind of ritualized 
talking in a modern context, don't know about a 19th century context, ritualize things like at a wedding, the bride will be hidden from the hedra with the idea that you don't want to like risk the bride seeing and being cursed with infertility by the hedra. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. Mm. But everyone's kind of expecting that to happen. Like, you don't hire the Hydra to come. You have a wedding and you're like, I know the Hydra will turn up. I've got the payment set aside. Yeah, yeah. It's expected that this will happen. You don't, like, actually want to avoid the Hydra. It's just all part of the... Part of the ritual. Yeah. So what happens if they, like, miss the paper announcement and they don't come? I don't know. I mean, I guess that's probably kind of linked to the fact that Hydra have a territory they operate in. Mm. They probably know what's going on in their territory. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess sometimes people do, like, elope and the Hydra don't find out. I guess you're not blessed with fertility then, but you're also not cursed, so... Yeah, I mean, I my question kind of ultimately was, actually, like, how important to people is this fertility blessing? Mm. I don't really know. Okay. Is this, like, today widespread in India? It definitely continues to occur in India today. I couldn't tell you, like, what percentage of Indian weddings... Have Hydra involved? Have Hydra involved? What percentage of kids have Hydra celebrate their birth? Yeah, I couldn't tell you how widespread, but it definitely continues to happen. Okay. So about 11 Hydra in Muzaffarnagar all support themselves through some combination according to the register of singing, dancing, or begging. And these three words all most likely refer to the same activity of performing and receiving time. I was about to ask that. I was like, do they count doing a performance at a wedding and then being like, pay us as begging? Yeah, yeah. So the distinction seems to be one of class rather than one of activity. So I mentioned Wafati's household before, how they owned a house and two gardens and were able to rent them out and doing pretty well for themselves. The four Hedra in that household are all described as singing and dancing as their occupation. But other Hedra who seem to be less well off are described as begging. And they're probably all doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And the British knew that, like, this performance and collection of Bartai was culturally significant for Hydra, but they still just called it begging. From the mid-1860s, we see various laws aimed at criminalising Hydra performance and feminine presentation, cemented in 1871 as part of the Criminal Tribes Act. This had a threefold aim, firstly, of reducing Hydra's means of supporting themselves, secondly, to prevent sodomy, with the understanding that appearing in public in feminine clothing was an act of solicitation, And finally, to increase public stigma against Hydra to discourage their public appearances. By the early 1880s, most Hydra no longer supported themselves through performance. The occupation of begging is still quite commonly recorded and can be read as referring to the traditional collection of Badhai, but there's definitely an overall decline in singing, dancing, and performance as listed occupations showing the effects of suppression by the British. And we do read about Hydra, for example, still walking around with musical instruments, but not performing because it was illegal to perform. But if they turned up at the wedding with the musical instruments and said, you know, give us the Badhai, they're doing as much as they can of the traditional practice within the limits of the law. Oh, I see. So people, everyone will kind of go through the process with them anyway. Yeah, you'll understand that they're doing it, even though they can't actually do it. So this happens today. So like it it starts up again that they start doing performances at Mm. weddings at some point. Is there, do we know, like a lack of continuity between what these dancers and like their content or their form traditionally used to look like and what they look like now like was there effectively like information like lost or destroyed by this suppression or was it never like that sort of codified anyway or from what i understand i assume like perhaps some information was lost but from what i understand it never fully stopped good good on it was illegal but it never stopped so hydra did find various ways to kind of 
circumvent the ban. So some, as I've mentioned, would walk around with musical instruments to kind of indicate song and dance without actually singing or dancing. Others would continue to practice in private homes so they wouldn't appear in public, but they would go directly to the home of someone who had a child that was getting married and only dress in their feminine clothing and perform within the home. That was still technically illegal, but the British weren't particularly interested in policing what went on in private homes, just in terms of the resources that would take. Yeah, that is simply too hard to police. Yeah. Others continue to perform publicly, but in male attire or in kind of a mix of female and male attire that they could get away with. And there's one quote from a British official that says, you know, they were flying very close to the wind in terms of their dress. So they're dressing like as feminine as they legally can while still having like plausible deniability that they're dressed as women. Okay. Despite the law being against both feminine presentation and performance, British officials much more readily tolerated public performance by Hydra, even if it was exactly the same performance if they weren't dressed in feminine clothing. In 1875, a group of district officials explicitly made it clear that it was gender presentation rather than performance that concerned them, writing, It seems hard to lay down a rule that an impotent person who dresses as a man and earns his livelihood by singing should be prohibited from singing. That and- does seem hard, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in some areas, he'd were even given explicit permission by officials to continue performing if they did so in male clothing. What about those hedra who were like intersex people assigned female at birth? How are they dealing with this situation? Are they dressing as men now? Are they dressing as women? What is expected of them by the British government? I don't know of any individual cases, but I think there was kind of some confusion and uncertainty and discomfort among the British around the fact that the sex binary wasn't as binary as they would like to think. We do see both discussions about castration especially when it's been done very young and the effects that has on a person's body Mm -hmm. and also these ideas about how having sex with men feminizes your body obviously one of these has some scientific basis and one does not but the british discuss both of these together as and like okay so these people have feminized bodies but now we want them to behave like men and they're obviously really kind of uncomfortable with this conflict yeah They sort of want them to become men, but but they're like, but you've had gay sex, so you cannot do that. Yeah, like you can't be a man, you can't be fully reformed into the gender binary, but we need everyone to be fully reformed into the gender binary, so like, yeah. So I think the answer is like, the British did not have a clear answer for what they wanted for these people. They were just like, God, just stop existing, please. Yeah, Mm. what they wanted were for these people to have never existed. Yeah, not to be super dark, but I'm sort of surprised that they never went to kill them as the answer to that. Yeah. Well, that's good, I guess. That is good, yeah. They're just persistent in trying to, like, stamp them out in every other possible way. Yeah. I'm assuming that, like, they killed them to some extent. It was just not, like, codified or systemic or... not aware of it happening. That doesn't mean it never happened. I think there's a few factors in how Hydra were actually treated by the British in comparison to, like, what the British aims were and how those things differed. So, as I mentioned, the governors of the northwestern provinces were quite Christian, and the kind of upper echelons of that government were much more concerned with Hydra than a lot of the lower-down people actually doing the work around these laws, actually policing these laws. What? 
portion of the population are Hedra. Is this like those like hyper-Christian rulers of this province making a huge deal out of a handful of people that don't fit into their worldview? I think yes is the answer. And like there were definitely people, so like W.G. Short, who compiled this register and was a Fanaga that we've been looking at, for example, and other people shared his view that it was a lot of law and a lot of work and a lot of policing and a lot of bureaucracy for something that just didn't matter, something that just wasn't a big deal. And that doesn't mean that these people fully embraced gender diversity and thought that Hydra were great and, you know. He was simply like, it doesn't matter if I'm uncomfortable with this. It's 11 people. It's not worth sending the police off. Yeah, they simply just didn't think it was a big deal. They didn't really care. They thought their efforts could be better used yeah. on other things. Yeah. Okay, no, that makes sense. And it's also the case with the Northwestern provinces being more focused on this than other areas that they were pretty happy for Hydra to just go over the border. If they left into a different province, that was fine. Okay. Yeah, and because obviously Hydra and Indian borders didn't line up with these British borders that they'd created, it also didn't necessarily matter for the Hydra to go over the border because that border never existed to them. Yeah, they were like, oh, I've gone into the eastern half of my territory instead. Yeah, so it was definitely the case that there was a lot of movement and a lot of Hydra would have just moved out of these areas. Mm, Okay. So to wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about what I wasn't able to discuss in this episode. I really wanted to focus much more than I did, and as we've discussed kind of a little bit towards the end, on the agency of Hydra and how they were able to kind of push back against these laws or continue to exist and continue to undertake their cultural practices in the face of these laws. So we have some examples of the way that Hydra were able to continue their performances and find ways to circumvent the ban on that. And also, as I've said, they were able to sort of move around and escape from areas where they were more persecuted. Another example that we have is of people petitioning to be removed from the registers of Hydra, and no doubt some of these people making these petitions were Hydra, who were just trying to get their names off the registers so they weren't being monitored by the government. So I did want to focus more on that than I did, but there really wasn't much information. Is that a matter of them like going into the office wearing men's clothing and being like, I've decided to stop being a Hydra, you can cross me off now? Yeah, it was often a matter of sort of saying like, oh, you put me on this register incorrectly. I'm not impotent, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It was basically trying to say, no, I'm not an impotent man. I'm not a eunuch. You've misrepresented me. Mm, Okay. But I think like our best evidence for Hydra's resistance to this is just the ongoing existence of Hydra culture and the fact that, as I've said, modern Hydra do continue to exist and practice pretty much all these cultural practices that I've talked about. The Criminal Tribes Act, which was introduced in the 1870s, remained in that 1870s form in place until 1911, and it wasn't fully repealed until 1949. And Hydra do definitely continue to face discrimination and violence in India today, and there's much to be said about their experiences in the wake of the Criminal Tribes Act, including their more recent history of activism, their fights for legal recognition, equal rights, and protection from violence and discrimination. I hope that's something that we can cover in a future episode, but we're going to leave this conversation here today, and hopefully we will return to this topic again at another time. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you get your podcasts and found this one. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, we really appreciate it if you rate us and leave us a review because that helps more people to find our podcast. And if you listen to us on Spotify, we also really appreciate it if you leave us a rating there. And if you do leave us a review, we might also read it out on this podcast. 
So this review comes from Percy Jackson's Awesome from the United States. I assume that's their full legal name. (laughs) (laughs) And it is entitled Comfort Podcast. It reads, the title says it all. This has definitely become my comfort podcast over the past few years. I found the show during my freshman year of college while COVID was still raving. It's not gone, but that was the peak. And I was going through some stuff and this podcast really helped and also got me into pursuing queer studies in my own academic work. Good, yes, the indoctrination is working. (laughs) (laughs) It's very well researched and the banter between the hosts is so enriching to listen to and makes history fun. I also appreciate that unlike a lot of queer podcasts, you go beyond 20th century queer history. If the Pauli Mari episode and Achilles and Patroclus episode were recorded on a tape, they'd be worn out and have skips in them by now by the amount of times I've put them on to fall asleep to. (laughs) I love the idea of queer abstract cassette tapes. Yeah, we could make those. We could make those, yeah. I don't know that they do anyone any good, but... I also named my cat Paulie after Paulie Murray. Overall, I love this podcast and it's done so much for me over the years. P.S. I also now know so many fun facts about Australia <laughs> that have definitely been useful when I do trivia nights with friends. So thanks <laughs> for that incredible. too. I wonder yeah. what trivia questions American asks about Australians. I want to go to Australian trivia in America. Like, <laughs> we would destroy Australian trivia. Or yeah. we wouldn't. It would be extremely embarrassing. <laughs> and we'd have to put on like British accents to get out of there unscathed. <laughs> but yes, thank you very much for your review. I'm very happy to hear about Paulie the cat. Thank you very much to everyone who leaves us a review. If you want to find more Curious Fact content in between episodes, you can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Curious Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com or you can write to us by snail mail and you can find our P.O. box and links to all our social media on our website, which is queerasfact.com. If you'd like to support our podcast financially, you can sign up to our Patreon. You'll get access to our monthly newsletter, the opportunity to vote on episode topics, and also access to some bonus episodes. And I'd like to thank three of our patrons today for supporting Queer as Fact. Thank you to Jesse Morse, Stephanie, and Mary Sisson for your support. If you would like to get some Queer as Fact merch, you can find that at our Redbubble store. We'll be back on the 15th of June when Jace will be talking about the 2022 lesbian baseball show, A League of Their Own, and its precursor, the 1992 Less Lesbian baseball film, A League of Their Own. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.